0: Open your Bibles, Acts chapter 15. I'm pretty sure we're technically halfway through the book of Acts today. Pretty sure. Some of you want to clap for that, but... Uh, <laughs> um, if you're a visitor, we're excited because we... How long have we been in Acts? Forever. <laughs> so, um, but we've been moving more quickly lately, if you've noticed. Uh, Acts chapter 15. Here's the deal. Uh, We're going to take a break from this sermon series after today. So next week is our gospel and culture conference, like I mentioned a minute ago. So let me just tell you how it's going to work. Friday night, 7 o'clock is our opening session. We're going to do worship together. Our worship team's been working on this for a few weeks. We're going to do some really good worship together. And then our speaker, Sky Jatani, is going to be opening the conference. Sky is a friend of mine. Some of you know Sky recently wrote a book called The Divine Commodity about the collision of American consumerism and the American church. And uh, very insightful. Uh, some some hard things, but some stuff that I think is going to resonate with our congregation. Sky is not a pessimist. Uh, as, as hard as, as some of the things he says are, uh Sky's very, he has a, a, a well-formed Christian imagination. So the way that he's going to engage us is going to be very creative. Uh, it's going to tap into the arts, and I think you're going to uh, really, really appreciate that. So Friday, 7 o'clock, our opening session, we're going to do some light refreshments and Q&A afterwards for folks who want to stay around. Saturday, 6 o'clock, We're doing our first summer picnic of the year out on the boulevard, so hope you can join us for that. It's going to be $5 like it always is. We'll hang out for a while on the boulevard. 7 o'clock, our second session, again, opening worship. Sky will speak, some more uh, Q&A afterwards, and then Sunday we'll wrap things up. Sky's going to be preaching. Does that make sense how that's going to work? Really hope you guys can be here for that. We've designed this with you in mind, like I said before, but then we've invited over 60 churches in the city of Chicago to join us. So make sure to be here. Feel free to invite somebody to to join you. So that's next Sunday. And then the following four Sundays, we're going to do a little mini sermon series that we're tentatively calling the Urban Churches of Acts. And what we're going to do is four different preachers are going to take four different cities from the book of Acts, and we're going to examine life in those cities And we're going to examine the early church in those cities. How did they respond to the culture and the pressures around them? Uh, And I think what we're going to find as we look at these very diverse cities is that the issues that that early church faced are very similar to some of the stuff we face in Chicago today. So four different preachers, four different cities, the urban churches of Acts, and then we'll be back to finish out, to finish, to finish out the uh, our, our our sermon series. So today, Acts chapter 15. Uh, this is a, an interesting text. Uh, one one commentator calls this the watershed chapter of the entire book. The, the church in this chapter is going to face some things that is going to cause them to go into in in one of two directions, one of two radically different directions. The entire character of the early church is going to be shaped depending on how they address the issues that are raised in this chapter. It's a huge, momentous... Well, you'll you'll get the sense of this here in a minute. But this is is my challenge this morning. It's not going to be a stretch for you to see the the big implications of this this chapter. You're going to be able to understand pretty quickly the global implications for what happens in this chapter, the historical importance of it, what's going to be more challenging for me and for you is to see our place in the story this morning. Does that make sense? You're going to be able to see the big implications really easily. What's going to be a stretch for you and for me is to see how we fit within this story. Does that make sense? So, so here's my request. Just stretch with me this morning. I can't do this for you, I can't tell you this is how you fit into this story, I'll try to do my best, I'll try to point out some things, but I need you to join me in exploring this text and ask, how does this impact me today? Okay? Are you willing to do that? That would be great. Uh, Nicole, I've asked Nicole to read the text this morning. Mostly because I'm a little bit lazy, um, but also just to get another voice. So, Nicole, if you could come, please, and read this chapter.
1: Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught to Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and, as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told the Gentiles they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it. That the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm not going to go verse by verse. Hopefully that's good news to you. Uh, what I want to do is I want to I note three large movements in this text, and, and we'll just name them. Expansion, Scandal, and Reaction. Expansion, Scandal, and Reaction. I want to walk through these three, mo- three, three movements, but I, I need you to kind of have this story in the back of your mind. So I'm going to recap what Nicole just read to you, and I'm going to add a little bit to it, because in the in the... Letter of Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, he fills in some of the details. Many scholars agree that some of the events that Paul refers to in Galatians are the same as what happens here in our story today in Acts. So let me, let me just kind of recap this story for you because I want you to have it in the back of your mind as we go through these three movements of expansion, scandal, and reaction. Uh, there's a church in Jerusalem... There's a church in Antioch. Church in Jerusalem is sort of the center of Jewish Christianity. The church in Antioch, the the center of, of the Gentile Christianity, the new Gentile church. Peter, one of the apostles, goes and visits the church in Antioch. He leaves the church in Jerusalem and goes and visits the church in Antioch. And while he's there, he has meals. He shares food with the Gentile Christians. You may remember, if you've been around a little bit, That at one point, God came to Peter and said, you need to go to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile man and his family, eat with them, proclaim the gospel. This was a big deal because Jews didn't eat with Gentiles, wouldn't go into their homes, wouldn't eat their food. But God commands Peter to do this. So it's not too strange to us that Peter, this Jewish man, goes to Antioch, this Gentile city, and eats with, hangs out with Gentile Christians. Word of this probably got back to Jerusalem. And some of the Jews in Jerusalem began making life difficult for the Jewish Christians. Coming to them and saying, what's this we hear about one of your Jewish leaders eating with Gentiles? Breaking our dietary laws. What's this all about? And so it seems that James, who was the brother of Jesus and sort of the head of the church in Jerusalem, sent some men to Antioch. Maybe some Pharisees, some men who used to be Pharisees who converted to Christianity, Jewish believers, sends them to Antioch, and they confront Peter. What do they say to him? We don't really know, but probably something along the lines of, hey, you eating with Gentiles is making life really difficult for us back in Jerusalem. You need to stop. And so he does. Peter withdraws from fellowship. He stops eating with the Antioch Christians with the Gentile Christians. And and we learn from Paul that not only did did Peter pull back, but other Jewish Christians in Antioch pulled back. Even Barnabas, Paul's right-hand man, pulls back from fellowship with the Gentile Christians. Paul is furious, and he confronts Peter publicly, and he says, "What, what are you doing? How how can you pull back from fellowship with our brothers and sisters who are Gentiles? This is completely inappropriate. There's, There's sort of this public debate that ensues, and the church decides that they need to send Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, and these Jewish representatives back to Jerusalem to hash this thing out, to figure it out once and for all. Do Gentile Christians need to keep the same dietary laws? Do they need to be circumcised like the Pharisees were claiming? So they go back to Jerusalem. James, brother of Jesus, head of the Jerusalem church, calls a council where they hash this out. The Pharisees make their point. They say, look, if they're going to be saved, they have to be circumcised. Then Peter gets up and he says, you know my story. You know that God came to me, sent me into the home of a Gentile, where I ate where this man and his whole family became Christians. I've seen it. We are saved by faith, Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, Paul and Barnabas stand up and they start telling stories about all these Gentile churches around the world that they've planted, and the evidence of the Holy Spirit in these churches, the amazing things that they've seen. And then James finally wraps things up, and he says, "He says it's clear from the scriptures. It's clear from the scriptures that God is calling out a new people." from the Gentiles, a church, a new nation. And so they draft a letter. They send it to the church in Antioch. And basically the letter says, we're sorry. We're sorry that these people came and troubled you by demanding that you be circumcised. We're all saved by grace. They request that they would, that these Gentile Christians would keep some of the dietary laws. And beyond that, the the letter closes. And the Antioch church we're told, receives the news gladly. That's the backdrop. This story is loaded, loaded, loaded with meaning for this early church. So my job is to unpack some of that, but please just, can you keep that narrative in the back of your mind? Can you let that sort of hover there? Okay. Here we go. First theme, first movement, expansion. The church is exploding at this time. Paul and Barnabas have been traveling all over the Roman Empire. First, they started by going to the Jewish synagogues in these different cities, and they would proclaim the gospel. Then they would begin proclaiming the gospel to those Gentiles who had converted to Judaism or who were God-seekers. And then more recently, we see that Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles who have no knowledge of Judaism at all. Who, who aren't showing up at the synagogue, at the church, as it were, to, we might call them, pagan Gentiles. And, and, and people are responding. The church is growing. Churches are being planted all over the Roman Empire. The church is expanding rapidly in this day. Scholars say that it's at this point that Gentile Christians become more numerous than Jewish Christians. Do you think this might cause a problem? Uh, again, I, I, like I said before, I don't think it's going to be hard for me to point out the, the big picture implications of this. You know that, that our nation is one that experiences this kind of rapid change, right? So in the 1960s, uh, 15% of the American population was of non-European descent in the 1960s. Do you know what it is today? It's more than double that. And, and, and sociologists will say that it's just a very short matter of time before there's no simple majority of any one ethnic group in our nation. Did you know that? Rapid change. So we, some of us know this, this sense of, of the world changing very, very quickly. The, the church in our day is changing radically. It used to be that when people pictured the average Christian person in the world, they pictured a, a, a white European male for hundreds and hundreds of years. Do you know who the Who the stereotypical Christian is today? An African woman. The center of of global Christianity has shifted from the north, from the west, to the south. So that today, there are more Christians worshiping on a Sunday morning in China than there are in all of Europe. More believers gathering for worship on a Sunday morning in China than in all of Europe. There are more Anglicans, people uh, 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 who belong to the Anglican church, in, in four African countries than in all of the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom combined. Half of all worshippers in London on a Sunday morning are African immigrants. Do do, 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 do you get the sense here of how our view of Christianity, of global Christianity, is changing very, very rapidly? Some of you, this is second nature. You're like, yeah, duh, I know this. But for others of us, this is significant. The world is changing very, very rapidly. We find ourselves in a similar position as did this early church. And like I said before, the Gentiles are now converting not from Judaism— but from a variety of religious, spiritual, not spiritual backgrounds. And so you know what some of the Jewish Christians are whispering kind of behind the scenes? They don't, they don't know our traditions. They don't know our history. What's going to happen to our values, to our morals, with all these pagan Gentiles becoming Christians? We don't face anything like that today, right? Right? See, there's this thing that happens when when someone who's in the majority all of a sudden finds the world that's turning upside down. Oftentimes people respond with fear. And we're, we'll see some of that in the text this morning. And again, we don't know anything about that, right? Some of you will remember the... Uh, the really horrible shootings at Virginia Tech a few years ago. You guys remember that? Um, and when it came, came to light that the, the perpetrator was a, a Korean immigrant, there's a, 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 a political commentator who, who said this. Nate, can we put up this quote? Almost no attention has been paid to the fact that he was not an American at all, but an immigrant, an alien. What was Cho doing here? How did he get in? He was among the 864,000 Koreans here as a result of the Immigration Act of 1965, which threw the nation's door open to the greatest invasion in history, an invasion opposed by a majority of our people. 36 million, almost all from countries whose peoples have never fully assimilated in any Western country now live in our midst. Cho was one of them. I don't have to tell you how ridiculous, wrong-headed, ignorant this is. But this is, this is, this is not a, an uncommon response. This person, this white male, is finding himself in a country that's changing radically. This week, um, I saw this story from a, a major... News Network. Um, and, And there's these commentators who were discussing a story out of Europe where some scientists have found that there's more cases of Alzheimer's in the United States than there are in Finland and Sweden. Did anybody else see this story? So this guy was trying to make sense of this. Make sure I quote him right. So he says, so why is this? Why is this happening? And his theory, because... We, talking about Americans, keep marrying other species and other ethnics. Whereas the Swedes marry other Swedes and the Finns marry other Finns, so they have a pure society. This is this so like major news channel in the morning person getting paid to comment on the news. There's, there's no excuse, right? But it's a reality. When, when, a, when a person is in the majority and all of a sudden, all of a sudden this person, this people finds that they're no longer in that place of privilege, power, Oftentimes the first response is fear. And it'd be nice to say that the church is above that. That Christians are above this. That we never get afraid. That those of us who've been in positions of power, privilege, that we're quick to let that go. But we, we know that's not the case. And I tell these two quick stories because I want you to get a taste of the tension that was in the air. I want you to get a sense of of, of kind of the static of, of, of how aware these Jewish Christians, these Gentile Christians were, that everything was changing around them, that there were really no rules, no protocol for this. And so this, there's this question, how are they going to respond to this uncharted territory? And we know how certain people in our time, and our culture respond, but how is this early church going to respond? Antioch, like I said, is the center of the Gentile church. So it makes sense that this is where this confrontation is going to happen. The church has expanded the, the Christian family now looks very differently than those first Christians expected it would. And this confrontation happens first in Antioch. What, what is the equivalent of Antioch in our day, do you think? I think we might be living in it. I think major cities, especially major American cities, where we have a lot of, of diversity, diversity, where we have new immigrants, old immigrants, where we have uh, a a constantly changing urban landscape, where we have literally the global church represented in our... I, I think maybe our city is Antioch. Again, I don't think I have to work real hard to convince you of this. I think if you have any awareness at all, which you do, you're aware of the tension that exists. You're aware of the questions that are in the air. You're aware of the fear that some people carry with them. Am I right? Expansion leads to scandal. These Pharisees come and they say to the Gentile Christians, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Brilliant solution. Everything's changing. The church is expanding. There's all these different people who don't look like us coming into the church. Now, what are we going to do about this? Hey, let's just get everybody circumcised. A perfectly natural solution. No, no Gentiles have been required to be circumcised up until this point, right? So it's only when the Gentiles, uh, when there's a lot of Gentiles that, that the, the Jewish leaders say, we, we need to figure something out here. What's the big deal with circumcision? Um, Let's not spend a lot of time on this, but a little bit that you need to know. So uh, circumcision is very, very, very common in the ancient Near East. So when when God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to turn you into a nation to bless the world, to carry out my mission. One of the signs that you're going to be my unique people is this this sign of circumcision. Uh, And that was not an uncommon practice in the ancient Near East. That shifts over time. As the Greek empire rises, as, as, as Hellenistic, as Greek culture becomes the dominant world culture, uh, circumcision becomes much less popular. The Greeks believed that circumcision was an obscene gesture, that it just was the wrong thing to do to the male physique, okay? And so as their culture spreads, as Greek culture becomes dominant, it becomes very unpopular to be circumcised. Uh, So much so that some Jewish men would undergo a procedure to reverse their circumcision. I did not spend any time figuring out how that works. But if you're interested, it happens. So I'm sure you Google that. You can figure it out. Point being, point being that at this time in history, to be circumcised was a genuinely unique mark of who you were. It used to be that it was very common. Not in this day, not in this time. People were used to being ridiculed because of it. It was their identity. It marked them as a people, as an ethnic tradition. It marked them as people set aside by God. Do you see that? Now, now that the people who come to the Gentile church, to the Antioch church, they're probably Pharisees. So these are men who've been schooled in the best of, of Jewish law. Um, they, they know everything there is to know. And, and as we've said before, the Pharisees believed in the possibility of resurrection. So there were other Jewish uh, lawyers, scholars who didn't believe in it, but the Pharisees believed there could be a resurrection. So think about this. These are, these are men who have only had to add to their existing belief. Do you see that? They, they didn't have to change a lot about their way of life, what they believed, what they did. They simply had to add to it Jesus the Messiah, crucified and resurrected. Everything else could pretty much stay the same, right? So let's think about this setting. The Pharisees come to this Gentile church. These are men who really haven't had to change very much. Just add to their belief. These are men for whom circumcision is absolutely natural, normal thing to expect. So when they come and they require, they ask that the Gentile Christians be circumcised in order to be saved this is a very, very natural request. Do you see this? This isn't like, let's choose the strangest, weirdest thing that we can ask them to do, and hopefully they won't do it. This is, this is just coming out naturally from their culture, from their tradition, from their ethnic background. Do you see that? This is important. You need to, do, you, do you get this? This request that you be circumcised in order to be saved was a very, like, to them, just a neutral request. That's important. The basic assumption for them was, in order to be saved, all you need to do, it's really simple, all you need to do is become like us. In order to be saved, in order to be full members of the family of God, it's not hard, it's not complicated, just become like us. Paul takes offense. Paul is literally scandalized by this. Uh, uh, put up the Galatians passage. So, so Paul, when he's writing to the church in Galatia, he refers to this event, and he says, Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, talking about the Pharisees, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. So instead of snip-snip, chop-chop, yes, right. Um, thank you. That should have been the sermon title. Uh... Paul, Paul is offended. He's scandalized by this request, which leads to an interesting question. Why? Why does Paul react so differently? Because guess what? Paul is also a Pharisee. He's a Jewish Pharisee. Same education, same background, same tradition, same circumcision, same story, same history. Why does he respond differently? Let's put up the Philippians passage. Writing to the church in Philippi, If others think they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In other words, look, I come from the same place, same history, same background, same tradition, but... why Why is it that the Pharisees make a request that to them is perfectly natural and in that same moment, Paul is totally scandalized? One way we could answer this would say, well, Paul encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and it totally transformed his life. True, true. But can we say, and? Can we add another one to that? Where had Paul just been spending all of his time Was it in the Jewish synagogue? Was it with his Jewish buddies, with his Pharisees? I'll give you a hint. No. Where had Paul just been all over the Roman Empire? Who had Paul been spending his time with? Gentiles. Who is Paul's community? Who is Paul's family? See, Paul, Paul has experienced what God is doing in the Gentile church. Paul has seen pagan people have their lives totally transformed by the gospel. Paul has seen churches start where his Pharisee buddies would have never thought possible. Paul has seen women and men and children come to faith in Christ in very surprising places. Paul has been doing life with people who come from a radically different place than he does. So when the Pharisees come and say, hey, if you're gonna be saved, which is what they say, if you're gonna be saved, you have to be circumcised. What is Paul thinking about? He's thinking about his Gentile family who are saved, who have been saved, who are full members of the family of God. Is it right for Paul to be offended? Is it right for him to be scandalized by this? This is one of those challenging things for me in this sermon. This is where I need you to stretch a little bit. Those Pharisees, I think they were responding out of fear. But I don't think that their requirement to be circumcised was was in their eyes bad. I don't think they were trying to do something evil, right? And yet Paul reserves some of his strongest language for this. So, So the question for me this week has been, what am I doing? What am I doing to put obstacles in front of the gospel? And and here's the reason why this question is so difficult. Because the Pharisees didn't know they were doing that. The Pharisees were responding just out of what they knew. Their tradition, their culture, their experience. And, And so there's this question. What are we doing out of our culture out of our experience, out of our background that we're not even aware of, but that may be a hindrance to the gospel. Do you understand the question that I'm asking? Do you understand why it's so hard to answer it? I would love, right now, I'd love to stand up and say, here's the five ways that our church is doing this. Or here are 10 things that you might be doing to hinder the gospel. But I I can't. Because I don't, I don't necessarily know what they are in my own life. Just like the Pharisees didn't know that they... Does that make sense? I'm going to come back to this in a moment. So just let that question hover there for a second. The Pharisees, they, they come from a place where all they've needed to do is add a new set of belief to existing way of life, existing set of belief. Paul, on the other hand, is coming from a place where not only has he encountered the risen Christ, his whole worldview has been turned upside down because who he spent time with, because who he understands his family to be now. Expansion leads to this scandal. It has to be resolved somehow. It ha- there has to be a, re- a reaction to this. And so they decide to go to Jerusalem. This is a big deal because now this is not just a question for the Gentile church. This is a question for the church, for the whole church, for the global church. They go to Jerusalem. And, uh, and what you find here, if you're a Gentile, is not going to be encouraging to you. You're at the center of the Jewish faith, the the Jewish tradition, right? This is the center of the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem. Who's in the room making the decisions? Jewish men. If you're a Gentile, this does not look good for you. You're, 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 You're probably surmising, I know how they're going to decide. But they don't, right? We know how the story ends. We know that they don't decide They don't just build up their Jewish walls higher and higher. They react differently. And that's a big, 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 big deal. We don't see enough examples of that kind of behavior in our life today, do we? That's a big deal. And so we need to ask why. What allowed those men in positions of privilege and power to release it? Because we don't see that happen very often, do we? Not just in the culture at large, but within Christianity. So there's three different men who speak in this passage and each one of them appeals to something different. And this is where I think it gets very practical for us in our day. As we wonder, how do we respond to this kind of topsy-turvy world that we live in where scandal is something that we too will have to face, where we too will be confronted with the question of the essence of the gospel. These three men appeal to three different things. Watch what they do. First person, Peter. Peter. After the Pharisees make their case, Jewish, uh, Gentile Christians have to be circumcised. Peter, what does he say? He says, you know my story. God directed me to go to the Gentiles. God directed me to eat with the Gentiles. God showed me that he shows no favoritism. God came to me and made it very, very clear that we are all, Jews and Gentiles alike, saved only by faith. What is, what is, what is Peter appealing to? God's direct guidance. Peter's saying, God made it very clear to me. Then Paul gets up. What does Paul do? He tells stories. It's just a short little verse there, but I'm guessing because we know that Paul could do some talking that these stories went on and on and on. You'll never believe what happened in the churches in Galatia. After I got stoned, and then this happened, and then these people came to faith, and then, then this church was started here, and then this family who was doing this. Story after. What is Paul appealing to? The evidence of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. Paul saying, look, if, you've, if you saw the things that I saw, you, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't doubt that the Holy Spirit of God is active in the lives of people who don't know anything about circumcision, who who wouldn't know the first thing about keeping our dietary laws. Paul says the Holy Spirit is active. Peter, direct guidance. Paul, evidence of the Holy Spirit. And then, this is sort of the climax, James. James is the brother of Jesus. James is the head of the, the Jewish church. James, in other words, has the most to lose. What does James appeal to? Where does James go? He goes to the scriptures. James appeals to the scriptures and he says, look, we've, we've heard what Peter has said. We know that this lines up with the story of this in the scriptures. And James, in this rather profound statement, he says, it's clear from the scriptures that God is calling out A people, a family, a new nation, listen, from the Gentiles. This is big because the Jews were used to talking about themselves in contrast to the Gentiles, distinct from the Gentiles. And what does James, the privileged, powerful position, the, the brother of Jesus, head of the Jewish church, what does he say? It's clear from the scriptures that God is calling out this new people, this church from the Gentiles. These three men appeal to God's direct guidance, to evidence of the Holy Spirit, and to the testimony of Scripture. And, And I don't think it's anything short of miraculous that their decision then favors the Gentile Christians. Somehow in this moment, they're able to transcend their bias, their stereotype, their desire for privilege and power by appealing to God's guidance, to the evidence of the Spirit and to the Scriptures. And so they, they make this decision and it's a massive, massive turning point for this early church. It's, it's all of a sudden clear that Gentile Christians don't have to become something they're not in order to be saved. Gentile Christians aren't going to be required to take on someone's tradition and history that's not their own in order to be fully accepted into the family of God. Uh, this is how Dr. Uh, Sungchan Ra puts it uh, in his uh, recent book: the Jerusalem Council depicted in Acts 15 releases the church from Jewish captivity and launches the church forward to continue pursuing the Shalom community. The gospel goes forth into all corners of the world, moving towards the picture of Revelation 7 when every nation, tribe, people, and language will gather to worship before the throne of God. What is he saying? It's at this moment that the church is released from its Jewish captivity. It's freed up to pursue the mission of God wherever God leads to all corners of the earth, leading one day to what Revelation 7 says will be every tribe, people, nation worshiping together at the throne of God. Do you see the turning point that this is for the early church? What is it, what is it that we can release? What is it that we can let go of in order to further the mission of God in our world? What is it that, that you, you could let go of? What is it that this is a scary question. What is it that we as a church could let go of in order to allow the mission of God to continue to further? Quick, quick postscript, PS.. here to this, this passage. Peter and James, uh, we don't hear from them anymore in Acts. Two, two people who've been very central, especially Peter, to the story thus far. That's it. They're done. That's significant. These are two men who've put the mission of God first above their privilege, above their position. And they fade. The mission continues. God does amazing things. But their story is over in Acts. Uh, The the letter to to the Gentile Christians includes this request that the Gentiles be willing to keep some of the Jewish dietary laws. Why? So that the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, could remain in fellowship together. The Gentile Christians were being asked to make some sacrifices so that they could maintain friendship and relationship, so that they could still share meals together. This wasn't a requirement for salvation. This was a request so that they could maintain fellowship. Um, and, and then finally, a last P.S. The gospel remains a scandal to both the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian. The gospel remains scandalous to the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian. What do I mean? Imagine if you're a a Jewish Christian. Imagine if for your whole life you've just understood that to be in relationship with God meant to be circumcised. And all that went along with it. Imagine that that was your history, your story, your tradition. That was just built into you. This is, of course, of course, of course, the Gentiles are going to have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Imagine that that's your story. And then all of a sudden, that's taken away. That's That's hard. The the gospel remains scandalous to the Jew because they're confronted with this reality. There is nothing that can be added to the gospel of Jesus. Not your best tradition, not your best religious practice. Nothing can be added to the simple, beautiful message of salvation through grace. And to a people who have depended on a lot of other things, who've told a lot of other stories in their tradition, that's scandalous. There's nothing that we can bring, nothing that we can add to this gospel message. The letter closes with this short phrase, and it's one that we'll be exploring in the next few weeks. Gentiles avoid sexual immorality. We can pass over it, but we need to understand that this allows the gospel to remain a scandal to the Gentiles too. It, uh, we're going to start exploring these urban churches and acts, and you're going to be, uh, I think, shocked you're going to be shocked at some of the sexual behavior that was totally normal in this day, in these cities. The type of sexual practice that was common, that was expected, that was even glorified would put anyone in the city of Chicago to shame. And so just like those Pharisees brought with them all of their expectations into Christianity, so these Gentile Christians brought all kinds of very interesting expectations about their sexuality into the early church. Things that we would just blow our minds was common practice in some of these early Gentile churches. And so this little phrase, avoid sexual uh, sexual immorality, allows the gospel to be scandalous to the Gentiles. Because not only, Jewish Christian, do you not have anything to stand on except faith in Jesus, but also Gentile Christian, the gospel of Jesus has to reorient your entire life. And so Pharisee, you can't just add a belief to your existing way of life. It has to change everything. So two two closing questions for us. Two closing questions. Worship team, you can come on up. What about our lives is hindering the gospel? My starting point, my starting point is that there's something in our lives that is hindering the gospel. Are you willing to go there with me? Unless there's any perfect folks out there. What in our lives is hindering the gospel message? I can pretty much guarantee that it's not going to be something real obvious. It's going to be something that we think is pretty normal, pretty neutral. Are you, are you willing to ask that question this week? Are you willing to ask what in my life is hindering the gospel message? Here's my best shot at an answer to that. Who are you spending time with? Because if our time is spent only with people of our tradition, of our background, of our story, guess what? It gets real hard to answer that question. But if we have Paul's experience, where his family, his community, all of a sudden includes people of vastly different perspective than him, then guess what? He gets offended. I wish they'd just go the whole way and cut Who are you having meals with? Who are you having lunch with today? Who are you inviting into your home? Is it people of your same background, your same tradition, your same ethnicity? Or, like Paul, are you in relationship with people whose perspective, whose story is going to radically alter your idea of what the gospel is all about? So that's the first question. What about our lives is hindering the gospel? And then, secondly, is the gospel still a scandal to you? Is the gospel still a scandal to you or has it become passe? Has it become normal? Has it become your security blanket? Because for those Jewish Christians and those Gentile Christians, the gospel was a scandal. Is there anything, church, that you are relying on for salvation, that you've added to for salvation, to the gospel? The gospel is a scandal to you. Is there anything in your life that hasn't been radically reoriented around the death and resurrection of Jesus? Church, the gospel is a scandal to you too. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that we rely solely on your grace and on your mercy. Uh, th- these, these kind of moments in your scriptures can overwhelm me. I can very quickly feel helpless. I can very quickly feel like there's, there's no way that, that we can ever be aware enough to know if we're hindering your gospel. Uh, how, how is it possible for uh, uh, us to remain in that place where our lives are constantly reevaluated by the truth of Jesus death and resurrection, I can get overwhelmed really really quickly Holy Spirit of God would you please encourage our hearts? would you please give us the courage to ask the hard questions about ourselves and our church about how we spend our time about who we 're spending our time with would you would you allow us to be just totally honest? about whether all of our lives has been subject to your gospel. Would you allow us to be honest and ask whether we have added added even one single thing to the simple saving gospel of Jesus? And give us the courage to look, be merciful with us as you show us the answers. And then give us the grace to move forward. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next week. In addition to our guest preacher, we'll be celebrating communion together. So over this week, would you prepare yourselves as we celebrate the Lord's table? Would you now receive the benediction? Bow your heads. And now, God, would you send us out as people whose lives are an open door to your gospel? Lord, would our city look at us, our lives, and see the beautiful, gracious message of a son, of the Son of God, crucified, resurrected, Holy Spirit, send us forth in your strength and your power. You are the everlasting God. We depend on you, not on ourselves. We look to you, not to ourselves. We pray in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll see you next week.